0: 6th period. In the end Raleigh returned from the Orinoco laden with no gold, but with heavy tales of the countless booty which he had failed to obtain, and in the existence of which he implicitly believed, as his spirited defense against the charges of his disappointed critics and would-be profit Sharers proves, once again, after many years, and after he had endured many wrongs, hardships, and imprisonment in England, Raleigh succeeded in 1617 in making his way to Vienna, his health had now become shattered, and he found himself unable to explore the Orinoco River in person. With the result that the absence of his powerful and charming personality, which had affected so much in these regions in the past, was much felt, to the disadvantage of the expedition. A portion of his forces made its way inland, but it was attacked by the Spaniards, and young Walter Raleigh, the only son of the explorer, was slain. On this occasion, the party actually discovered four gold refineries. Spain, however, had increased the strength of her position in this neighborhood enormously, and the expedition failed, Raleigh, broken hearted at the death of his son, returned to England, he had procured no gold, all that he had won for himself was the enmity of Spain, which, in the end, through the instrumentality of King James I cost him his head, so much for some of the most important of the early English adventurers in the seas which the Spaniards claimed as their own, to refer to the whole company of notable but buccaneers in detail is impossible, although so many others, from Cavendish to Sharp, Davis, Knight, and the rest, are worthy of note. There were, moreover, the Dutch freebooters, such as Van De DeWorty, Spilsburgen, and others, as Jaxxlermite, Francois Lalonias, and Bartolomeu Portugues, who ransacked and burned every town which failed to resist their fierce onslaughts from the Gulf of Darien in the north all round the coast to the Pacific Ocean on the west. Chapter X4 in Raids on Portuguese Colonies The rivalry which had existed between the Portuguese and the French in the early days of Brazilian colonization has already been referred to. With this exception, the first era of the colony of Brazil was comparatively peaceful that is to say, the Portuguese, proving themselves of a more liberal temperament than the Spaniards, did not suffer from the fierce aggressions of the English and the Dutch to the same extent as did their Castilian neighbors. In 1580, however, the situation altered itself abruptly in a most unpleasant fashion so far as the Portuguese were concerned. In that year Portugal became subject to Spain, and thus the Portuguese colonies were now controlled by Spain. As a result of this Brazil had to undergo the enmity of the English and the Dutch in addition to that of the French. This latter was now of comparatively old standing. The forays and raids of the French had, indeed, continued almost without cessation, Pernambuco and Paraiba being two of the chief spots attacked. In many of these incursions the French were assisted by the natives, with many tribes of whom they had succeeded in establishing good relations, in the course of time. However, it became evident that the French, like the British, were to be feared in these neighborhoods rather on account of their raids than for the danger of a permanent settlement. Until 1580 several English expeditions had proceeded to Brazil, and had succeeded in trafficking with the Portuguese in complete enmity. One or two of the English are even said to have established themselves near Bahia in the quite early days of the colony, and to have lived on good terms with the Iberian lords of the soil. Afterwards, through the instigation of the European officials, this cordiality became lessened, and in 1580, as has been said, the nations proceeded to open warfare in South America. In 1582, Edward Fenton visited the coast of Brazil and was attacked by a Spanish squadron. One of the latter vessels was sunk, and a decided victory was obtained by Fenton, who, after this, put out to sea. This was the first hostile action undertaken by the English on the Brazilian coast. In 1591, Cavendish came to raid the various settlements. He ravaged many places and eventually came to Espiritu Santo where he landed a force, which, through bad generalship, was much cut up by the defenders of the place. Cavendish after this left the coast, and died on the way home to England some say of a broken heart. In 1595 James Lancaster's expedition arrived off Brazil. Lancaster had been brought up among the Portuguese in Europe. He understood their temperament, and was thus especially well equipped to command an enterprise such as this. After taking a number of prizes on the high seas, he fell in with another expedition commanded by Captain Venner, and the two forces united, Lancaster remaining in chief command, the English fleet now sailed for Recife, in the sport they discovered three large Dutch ships, which permitted them to attack the port without interference, Lancaster, who displayed admirable generalship, landed his forces, be surrounded and captured Recife, and the English found themselves masters of a large amount of booty, Lancaster, who was a tactician as well as a fighter. Now made terms with the Dutch. And offered them freight to take to England on terms which caused the Dutch ships to abandon their attitude of benevolent neutrality in favor of an active alliance. Shortly afterwards a squadron of five vessels hove in sight. These proved to be French. By presenting them with a the gift of Brazilwood. Lancaster won these to his cause as well. So now a fleet of three nations English. Dutch. And French were simultaneously occupied in plundering Recife. Against this force the Portuguese could do little. Fire ships and blazing rafts were sent down the river by the garrison who had taken refuge inland, but these attempts were frustrated, and, after some few weeks spent at Recife, Lancaster sailed away with his rich plunder, and the gathering of the hawks dispersed. It is worthy of note that Lancaster exhibited a trait sufficiently rare in his comrades. He apparently remained content with his booty, and determined to enjoy it for he does not appear any more in the character of a buccaneer. The Dutch now gave serious attention to South America, and a West India Company was formed in Holland for no other purpose than to capture and exploit Brazil. The First Fleet, commanded by Jacob Willicens, sailed from Holland in 1623. Both the authorities in the peninsula and Brazil had received warning of what was threatening, but no adequate steps would seem to have been taken for the defense of the colonies. The Dutch fleet anchored off Bahia. Where a force was landed, which succeeded in obtaining possession of the town, the Dutch were welcomed by the European Jews, who had taken up their abode in that place, and also by the Negroes, both of whom appeared to live in dread of the Inquisition. The Portuguese themselves, in the first instance, fled to the woods, under the impression that the raid was merely temporary, and that a day or two would see their waters free of the marauding bands, and would restore the sacked town to its rightful owners. When it became evident that the Dutch were fortifying the town and meant to retain possession of it for good, the national spirit of the Portuguese proved equal to the occasion, and Bishop Marcos Teixeira, after assuming the garb of a penitent, took command of the army, and hoisted the crucifix for his standard. The bishop proved an able commander, and the Dutch were closely invested in Bahia, finding themselves unable to stir outside their fortifications. In the meanwhile the news of the capture of the capital of Brazil had produced a tremendous shock in the peninsula, and the greatest fleet which had ever sailed south was prepared to assist Bahia. Domino Almenizés commanded the Portuguese section of the forces, which consisted of 4.000 men and 26 ships, while Fadric de Toledo commanded the Spanish fleet of 40 sail, which carried 8.000 soldiers, on March 28, 1625 this formidable array of vessels appeared off the Hia, the Portuguese colonists had continued to besiege their captured capital, and the bishop, who had striven and fought nobly, died, worn out by two great exertions, at the sight of the Iberian fleet, the Brazilians made a fresh attack upon the capital with enthusiasm, but the rash attempt was repulsed with great loss, several encounters now took place, and the Dutch sent out fire ships by night in the hope of destroying their enemy, the attempt, however, failed, and in the end the French and English mercenaries in the Dutch service, becoming tired of the struggle, worked their influence in the cause of surrender. Shortly after this occurred, a powerful fleet of Dutch ships, under Baldwin Henrik, came in sight, but on seeing the Spanish standards flying instead of the Dutch, sailed away to the north. Had it remained, it would undoubtedly have gained a decisive victory, since the Iberian forces were in much confusion. The Dutch prisoners were honorably treated, and in the end returned to Holland, where they met with a somewhat contemptuous reception on the part of their fellow countrymen. In 1627 the Dutch West India fleet fell in with a Mexican treasure fleet, captured this in its entirety, and the enormous wealth thus gained gave great impetus to the enterprises of this kind. The Dutch now raided the north of the continent, and in 1629 prepared an important expedition against Pernambuco. Fifty vessels sailed from Holland for this purpose. The force landed under the Dutch commander Wardenberg and commenced operations in earnest. First the town of Olinda, and then the neighboring town of Recife, were captured. After very severe fighting, it was some while. However, ere the position of the Dutch became secure, and even the short passage between the twin towns could only be effected in circumstances of great danger and difficulty, owing to the raids of the investing Portuguese, Soon after this the Dutch captured other neighboring ports, such as Nazareth and Paribas, the Dominion of Holland in northern Brazil now appeared assured, at the same time the counter-attacks of the Portuguese were ceaseless, and the leaders of the Dutch garrisons in South America made representations to the Netherlands in favor of reinforcements and a commander of Real Note. In response, Prince Moritz, Count of Massa, was sent out to take supreme control of the Dutch ventures on Brazilian soil. A personality more fitted for this particular purpose could scarcely have been lighted upon, for Prince Moritz was not only a brave soldier, but a tactful and chivalrous enemy, indeed. His figure stands out in glowing colors in this campaign among the woods of the far southern coast, and the continuance of the Dutch dominion was no doubt largely due to his individuality. His arrival with nearly 3.000 men inspired the worn soldiers of Holland with new confidence. Sierra was captured and São Jorge de Amina was attacked and taken as well. In his few moments of leisure Count Moritz gave his attention to the improvement of the town of Recife, Olinda being now utterly destroyed, as a result of the numerous battles of which it had stood as the unhappy centre. He drained the marshy ground, and planted it with oranges, lemons, and groves of coconut trees, thus embellishing the country in the neighbourhood. Very little leisure was permitted for undertakings of this kind, for the Portuguese persevering in their determination to regain their coastal territories, persisted in their attacks whenever an opportunity offered, a certain number, whose patriotism was last year to them than their purses, consented to traffic with the Dutch, and the Jews upheld with enthusiasm the interests of the newcomers in this matter, but the Portuguese, on the whole, remained steadfast to their ideals, and refused to have any dealings with the intruders. By this time the Dutch had every right to consider themselves as likely to remain the permanent possessors of northern Brazil. The circumstance, as a matter of fact, which was destined seriously to disturb their dominion came in the light of a totally unexpected happening, throughout the history of South America, when its lands were the colonies of Spain and Portugal. Events in the European peninsula had nearly always been echoed in the southern continent. The event, of course which had so great an influence on the affairs of both Brazil and the Spanish possessions was the revolt in 1640, when, after her 80 years' captivity, Portugal freed herself from the Spanish yoke, illustration, Ifeira de Magalha's Verdin Magellan, who first discovered the passage to the Pacific named after him. In the north of the colony the new situation led to a somewhat curious and paradoxical state of affairs. The Dutch had overrun northern Brazil for the sole ostensible reason that it was a possession of Spain. Now that Portugal had freed herself from Spain, and that Brazil in consequence was once again a purely Portuguese possession, all reason for the Dutch occupation of the coast of Brazil was at an end. In Europe the situation was this, the Dutch and the Spaniards had been for generations at deadly enmity, while the rivalry between the Portuguese and the Spaniards had induced a hostility rather less deadly. It is true. Nevertheless, sufficiently keen for the purposes of war, thus, with the freedom of Holland from Spain, and with the liberation of Portugal from Spain, the situation of the two, once vassal countries, was identical, they had an interest in common in preserving themselves from the rapacity of Spain, this was all very well in Europe, but in South America matters worked out very differently in actual practice, the Dutch were now firmly established in northern Brazil. Having their headquarters at the town of Recife, or Pernambuco, it was not in human nature to give up the fruits of their conquest merely because the Portuguese had driven out the Spanish officials from their territories in Europe. The situation from the point of view of Holland was simple, and could be put in a nutshell. The Dutchmen were willing enough to enter into friendly relations with the Portuguese, but not at the cost of the Brazilian possessions of the Dutch West Indian Company, which had been especially formed for the purpose of acquiring these. Count Moritz of Nassau had proved himself an able administrator, and it was now the turn of the Dutch to intrigue where before they had fought openly. In June, 1641, an agreement was negotiated in Europe between Portugal and the United States of the Netherlands, which concluded a truce for ten years. A year was allowed in order to carry this intelligence to the Dutch commanders in South America and elsewhere, in order to cement this new friendship. The Dutch further agreed to supply Portugal with arms and ammunition to aid in the common fight against Spain. The Brazilian policy of Holland was, however, quite different from that proposed in Europe. Instructions were sent to Count Moritz of Massa ordering him to continue in the command, to extend the sphere of the Dutch dominion, and, if possible, to capture Bahia. These instructions were largely due to the belief held in Holland that Portugal would be unable to maintain her independence for any length of time. When the news of the truce was first brought to Count Moritz at Recife, all the outward marks of festivity and great rejoicings were exhibited, a general fraternization ensued, and the late enemies and temporary friends regaled each other at various banquets, thus Paulo de Acuna, the Brazilian patriot, upon whose outlawed head the count had put a price of 500 florins to which de Acuna had retorted by placing a price of 2.000 cruzados upon the counts was now invited to feast with Massa, and the two entered into an intimate and rather chaffing discussion upon the respective prices they had put upon each other's heads. Very shortly, however, the Brazilians found reason to suspect the sincerity of the Dutch professions of friendship. A Dutch fleet sailed north, captured São Cristo Vau, and in other places seized a number of Portuguese vessels. The Portuguese now found themselves in something of a dilemma, owing to the very fact of the independence they had won. During the Spanish Dominion the ports had been manned by the Spaniards as well as by the Portuguese. This, of course, was no longer the case. Bahia, for instance, had now lost a great part of its garrison. The 700 Spaniards and Neapolitans who had served there were honorably treated by the Portuguese, and were sent on their way to Europe, but were captured by the Dutch ere they had left the coast. The Dutch aggression, as a matter of fact, was not confined to South America. A Dutch force of 2.000 regular troops had entered São Paulo de Luanda, La the capital of Angola. The loss of this important Portuguese possession on the west coast of Africa produced a direct effect on South America, for it was from here that the Brazilians had imported all their African slaves. Thus the whole of this traffic pass ate entirely into the hands of the Dutch for the time being. More of Nassau went the length of suggesting that the territory of Angola should become an appendage of that of Dutch Brazil. As the two were bound so closely by this traffic, the Dutch had also captured the island of St. Thomas, in that place. However, the climate avenged the Portuguese to the full, and the mortality among the Dutch from fever in this island was appalling. The Dutch in Brazil now sent an expedition to the north to obtain possession of the province of Maranhão. They captured and plundered the capital, pillaging churches and ransacking the sugar factories. The governor, Machel, appears to have behaved very badly. And with no little treachery towards his fellow countrymen, Nassau, when Machel surrendered, treated him with contempt, and imprisoned him. The situation had now become grimly farcical. In Europe, the Dutch were supplying the Portuguese with arms and stores, and acting in general as their allies, while in Brazil, the two nations were openly at war, and the Dutch were sending hostile expeditions in all directions. Just at this period, indeed, the ambition of the Dutch appeared to swell to the highest point. Count Moritz determined to push his conquests far to the south, and had even prepared an expedition for the capture of the Spanish town of Buenos Aires, but the attempt was frustrated by the hostility of the Portuguese and Indians nearer home. All this time, of course, Dutch fleets had been harrying the Pacific coast, and the Dutch had actually obtained a footing in southern Chile, although this was not destined to prove permanent, with the extension of their boundaries. However. It was but natural that the difficulty of preserving their dominion should increase. In Maranhão, freshly conquered as it was, rebellion broke out almost as soon as the Dutch had established themselves. Desperate fighting took place in the neighborhood of the capital, and many barbarities were committed on both sides. The Dutch governor, in a fit of exasperation, delivered 25 Portuguese to the savages of Sierra, and sent 50 to the Barbados to be sold as slaves. The English governor, however, after he had received these latter on shore, set them at liberty, and administered a severe reproof to the agent who had offered white men for sale in this way. Allowing to happenings such as these, the bitterness between the two races increased. In the end, Maranja was regained by the Portuguese, and the fort of Sierra itself was surprised by a force of Tupua Indians, and its garrison massacred. These occurrences were ominous, and the turn of the tide seemed to have set in. Prince Moritz of Massa now sent in his resignation, and after leaving everything in a state of complete preparedness, set out for Europe, accompanied by no fewer than 1.400 persons all told, a force which could ill be spared from Brazil at that period. Among them were a few Indians who were taken to Holland to demonstrate to the inhabitants of that country the accomplishments of their countrymen, and the nature of the new subjects. Nassau had governed the captured territories in a liberal and imperialistic spirit and his personality had been popular to a certain extent even among the Portuguese, his absence was severely felt, and the policy of the West India Company, in itself parsimonious and somewhat petty, undoubtedly suffered much from the want of his presence, for during the time that he was in power he had restrained the excesses of his own people, and used no little tact towards the Portuguese, his rank, moreover, counted not a little in winning their esteem, the new authorities had not the influence over the soldiery that Prince Moritz had enjoyed, and lacked not only experience but judgment. Shortly after the Sturt van Hoogstrand, a Dutch officer, offered his services to the Portuguese, and various other symptoms portended a breakup of the organization of the Dutch West India Company. Several attempts at insurrection took place in the neighborhood of Recife itself, and the methods of the Dutch in repressing these became increasingly harsh. Some of the malcontents were hanged, and in several cases their hands were locked off before death. The Brazilian patriot, João Fernandes, now became very prominent, and the Dutch in consequence began to be more and more harassed. The woods in the neighborhood of the town sheltered numbers of discontented Portuguese and Indians, who had collected stores and weapons, and had hidden themselves in the recesses of the forests until the time came for them to sully out for the attack. Several expeditions sent out by the Dutch to break up these bands were unsuccessful. The Portuguese either eluded them, or the Dutch fell into the ambushes prepared for them, and suffered loss without being able to retaliate. Every month the Portuguese grew stronger in numbers, and attacks were now frequent on the Dutch isolated settlements, many of which were captured and the inhabitants massacred. The Portuguese were determined to surrender none of the advantages which the nature of the country offered them, and thus the warfare still remained of a guerrilla order, and upon the sallying out of a formidable Dutch force, The Portuguese, with their Indian allies, would disperse in the dense forests, and come together again when the Dutch had concluded their march. The retaliatory methods of the Dutch served to enrage the Portuguese beyond all bearing. The Council of the Dutch West India Company issued a proclamation to the effect that all women and children in the towns, whose husbands and fathers were rebels, were to be evicted from their houses and left to fend for themselves. The idea seems to have been that these people would flock to the insurgents and thus hamper their movements. The result was that the unfortunate women and children were exposed to the mercy of the weather and the forests. João Fernandez had now collected a formidable number of men, and, posting these about nine leagues to the westward of Recife in a spot of great strategic advantage, he awaited the Dutch advance. 1,500 Dutch troops, aided by a number of native auxiliaries, came on to the attack. Three times they advanced and drove the Portuguese and their Indian alive some way up the hill on the sides of which they were posted. But each time the Dutch lost more and more men from the ambushes in the thick cane break which covered the ground. In the end the Dutch retired, having suffered very severe casualties. It is said that 370 of their force were found dead upon the field. Beyond the say number died on the retreat, while many hundreds were wounded. The Portuguese assert that their army consisted of 1.200 whites. Aided by about 100 Indians and Negroes, this fight had very important consequences, since it enabled the Portuguese forces to arm themselves with the weapons left on the field by the dead and wounded Dutch. During all this time the authorities at the HIA had remained quiescent, since officially no state of war existed, and in the eyes of the government the Dutch were supposed merely to be quelling some revolutionary movements ere they departed for Europe. Now the time came for this farce to be ended and the governor of Bahia sent troops to the north to join the insurgents in their struggle against the Dutch. The traitor Hoogstrat now definitely joined these forces, and the whole of the country south of Recife fell once more into the hands of the Portuguese. During this period the bitterness between the two armies was still further accentuated by the massacre of Portuguese by the Tupro Indians at Cunhau. This atrocity, as a matter of fact, was perpetrated on the initiative of the Indians alone. But at the time the Dutch unjustly, as it turned out were blamed for it, the circumstance induced retaliation, and eventually caused many barbarous acts to be done on both sides, after the fortunes of war had fluctuated on various occasions and the Dutch had alternately been defeated, received reinforcements, and become temporarily victorious again, the war came to an end, the Dutch consented to withdraw entirely from Brazil, to surrender Recife and all the remaining forts which they possessed, as well as the island of Fernando de Noronha. In return they were granted an amnesty, which was extended to the Indians in their service. Arrangements had been carried almost to a conclusion when the Dutch showed themselves prepared to continue the campaign in South America. This threat of renewed aggression had the effect of increasing the liberality of the Portuguese terms. The ensuing negotiations were considerably assisted by Charles I I. of England, who, about to marry Catherine of Portugal, Strongly took up the cause of the Portuguese in South America, and announced to the Dutch his intention to ally his forces with those of the Portuguese, and, if necessary, proceed to extremities. These representations of Charles were taken up by France and Portugal, and the Dutch, as a result, decided to waive some of their wilder claims. Before, however, the treaty was finally concluded, it was found necessary to pay certain sums in the nature of a ransom to the Dutch. These consisted of 4.000.000 cruzados, in money, sugar, tobacco, and salt, which were to be paid in 16 annual installments. All the artillery taken in Brazil, which was marked either with the arms of the United Provinces of the Netherlands or of the West India Company, were to be restored to their former owners. Thus, although Portugal may be said in one sense to have cooped the Dutch up within a narrow strip of remaining territory and to have been on the point of expelling them from Brazil by the sword. Actually the withdrawal was only effected by the payment of this heavy ransom. As Saudi has it, the Portuguese consented to pay for the victory which they had obtained. Chapters I The colony of Peru with South America now definitely settled. We may glance at the various provinces which constituted the Spanish-American continent. For a long while after the first establishment of the Spanish dominion the divisions between the various districts remained far fewer in number than was later the case. South America may be said to have been partitioned off in the early days into four main divisions. The northernmost of these was commonly known as terra firma, and comprised New Granada and the neighboring districts. This area is now occupied by the republics of Colombia, Venezuela, and Ecuador. To the south of terra firma the viceroyalty of Peru extended itself bordered on the south by the province of Chile, while to the east, occupying the remainder of the continent as far as the Brazilian frontier, and stretching over the fertile plains to the south, was the great province of Paraguay, which included the territories now contained in Argentina, Uruguay, Paraguay, and part of Bolivia, seeing that the headquarters of the colonial government was vested in Peru, it would be as well to deal with this portion of the continent first. Peru constituted in the first place the sole viceroyalty, and subsequently the senior viceroyalty, of Spanish South America. Lima, its capital and the seat of government, took care to distinguish itself from any other colonial city of the continent. Certainly no other town possessed such buildings and architectural decorations as those of which Lima could boast. The home of the viceroy, it was a city of pomp, processions, and stately movements. These, as a matter of fact, were by no means out of place. When the great importance of the spot from a governmental point of view is considered, every matter of consequence, in whatever province it may have had its origin, was referred for settlement to a lima, and it was here that the viceroy and his court gave judgments, the effects of which were echoed thousands of miles away. Of all the viceroyalties in the world, that of Peru was undoubtedly the proudest during the earlier Spanish colonial period, for the holder of the high office governed not merely a country, but the greater half of a vast continent. Seeing that the colonial policy of Spain invariably tended to pit one of her subordinate powers against another in order to avoid the acquirement of too much authority on the part of any special person, it was only natural that the authority of the viceroy, although great, was not supreme even in his own dominion. There were matters which had to be referred to the court of Spain, but even in these the importance of Lima remained in one sense unimpaired, for Lima then became the mouthpiece of the continent. And it was through her officials that the case was presented for the deliberations which pursued their leisurely course in Europe. The palace of the viceroy represented, naturally, one of the chief buildings in the capital. Impressive as was the authority of this high official, he was wont to live even his private life in great state. As a rule, he would set apart a short while in the morning and afternoon for the personal reception of petitions. There were, of course, numerous public functions in which it was his duty to take part. Thus, On the arrival of any new laws or decrees from Spain, the viceroy was accustomed to proceed to the council hall, where these were delivered to him. He would then salute the documents by kissing the king's signature and by laying the paper on his head. Many of these viceroys were notably honorable men, who refrained from taking a greater share than was necessary in the financial arrangements of the New World. At the same time, the opportunities for self-enrichment during the five years tenure of office were quite unusually numerous. Not a few of the occupants of this post took advantage of these, and the extravagant manner of their subsequent life in Spain upheld to the full the popular tales which were current concerning the fabulous wealth of the Americas, to go back to the Earl.